You're listening to Conversations with a Musicologist with me, Alex Burns. Episode 7, Aufwiedersehen. This episode includes a final update and reflection on the German-speaking Musical Greats project with German specialist Freya Riding. So for this podcast, I'm joined for the very last time by German specialist Freya Riding to talk all things Beethoven and how we've done on this exciting German-speaking musical greats project. And just as a note as well, um, because of the COVID-9 pandemic that's spreading around the uh, the world at the moment, me and Freya are doing this podcast over the phone. Um, we hope to still give you the best quality podcast we can and with all the juicy gossip and information that we're still going to talk about. So <laughs> thanks for joining me again, Freya. So let's get straight to it and talk about the big B himself, Beethoven. Why did you choose him out of all the German-speaking composers in the world to end this project? Um, what better way to finish our project than by discussing one of the most revered um, German-speaking composers of all time, the big B man himself, as you rightly said. <laughs> um, the music of Ludwig van Beethoven is enjoyed and performed all around the world and has become a central pillar of um, Western classical music repertoire. Also, this year, 2020, marks Beethoven's 250th anniversary. It does indeed. So, you know, big year for him. Lots of works, well, most of his works pretty much being recorded or being performed around the world. Um, and we chose only five, which was quite hard to choose, I think. Uh, so for this project, you chose to translate a blog on Symphony Number no. 5, which we, just, we did, did as like a, a snapshot kind of of the symphony and the 17th Piano Sonata. And then I chose to write about the um, Piano Trio, which is also known as the Ghost Trio, uh, Prometheus Overture and the First Symphony. Um, how did you go about choosing your two for the project? So I thought it would be interesting to look into two of his better-known works, um, which are sort of pieces that are so frequently performed and things that people may come across um, in, in live music performances. Uh, so I chose Beethoven's Piano Sonata Number no. 17, um, which is often referred to as the Tempest. Um, as I feel like this this um, sonata is very incredibly uh, dramatic and yet incredibly elegant at the same time, I found that really interesting, kind of exploring more of Beethoven's style, particularly as the piano works are things that a lot of pianists um, use uh, throughout kind of their development as a musician to, to perform and to learn. Mm. Um, and in terms of his infamous Symphony Number no. 5, I think it's uh, arguably one of his perhaps most famous works. Um, and yet people uh, on the whole are very unfamiliar with the middle movement. So everyone can probably sing the, the classic um, motif from the first movement that everyone obviously knows, but uh, being able to sort of look into the whole symphony as a whole as a snapshot. I thought that was a quite an interesting take on it. Yeah, um, definitely. So <laughs> yeah, no, I completely agree with you with um, the Fifth Symphony. I think um, it was a really interesting choice to do that because obviously there is the really famous opening movement, but a symphony as a whole is, is really fantastic, actually. And I mean, you know, Lord knows how many times that's been performed this year um, just for the anniversary year. Um, I chose uh, three works that I felt kind of balanced out the the scales really with what you chose so um the first symphony um I was I was going to do another symphony but I listened to the first one and I I felt quite inspired to write about it because it is it's just kind of really raw young kind of enthusiastic Beethoven I think the writing is fantastic mm. and so I thought that counteracted the kind of bit more serious and um kind of 
yeah, I mean, seriously, the best word um, for the Fifth Symphony that you chose. Um, mm. I chose a Prometheus overture because I'd, I'd like, I wanted to do another orchestral work and I think his overtures are, are fantastic. And the Prometheus overture is really interesting, just the way you, it's orchestrated, the way he uses different instruments. I think it's really great overture. And then I chose the Ghost Trio because I felt we needed some chamber music representation. Beethoven wrote loads of chamber music <laughs> and um, I felt like we needed to, to add some of that into this project. And I, you know, a couple of months ago saw this Ghost Trio live and it was fantastic. And I was, I just loved it and so inspired to write about it. So that's kind of why I chose mine. And I felt like with the five that we chose for this last month, they really complemented each other and we really got mm. quite a lot out of Beethoven, I think, and his music for the project. Um, and so kind of following on from that, means loads of ensembles around the world have all been celebrating Beethoven's 250th anniversary. Um, what is it about his music for you that still makes him so relevant in today's world? Uh, that's a really interesting question. Um, I think there's probably two reasons, uh, personally, why I think he is still relevant as a composer. Um, firstly, his music continues to inspire musicians and conductors and audiences today. You still have people having um, really personal reactions to his music, whether it's by learning it or performing it or, or seeing it live. And I think that's a really powerful thing that makes him relevant. And also, um, his music had such a pronounced impact on the music which followed. Um, as you said, when you hear the first symphony, it's not quite as perhaps mature, should we say, in style as the mm. fifth symphony. It's a lot sort of more energetic and young. Um, and it's really interesting seeing how his style developed and how him as a composer developed over this sort of bridge, this gap between what would become the romantic period of music and what was sort of the classical era. Um, yeah, I think he's a, a really important composer that obviously is very well revered and very well known. And that's, that's why it's important that he's still relevant today. Yeah, absolutely. I completely agree with that. And I think really, really good point about his music and, and him um, inspiring composers to come. So in lots of other composers later on, you can hear, mm. you know, inspiration from Beethoven. You can hear some, you know, Wagner, Mahler, those kind of composers, you know, all yeah. take stuff Definitely. from Beethoven. His, you know, the way that he wrote, um, the kind of motifs he might have used, structural stuff. It's really interesting. And I, I think actually that's the most obvious reason why he's so relevant today because composers now are still inspired by Beethoven and, and his mm. work. It's like, it's like the way that people are still inspired by Bach um, because of yeah. his use of harmony and the way that Mozart wrote melodies, you know, it's that kind of mm -hmm. idea. Um, and I think it's, it's great that everyone celebrated him. Even in isolation, people are still able to, you know, listen to Beethoven, and yeah. perform Beethoven, and it's it's really quite special, mm -hmm. I think. Um, yeah. So what what an exciting composer to end this project on. I really um, I was really happy when you picked him. I thought it was a good choice, um, and very relevant as well for what the world's doing. Um, so let's have a quick chat about this uh, project then, because obviously this March was the last month. We've done it for six months now. Um, we've explored a real range of composers um, who were all either German or German-speaking, and this included Paul Hindemith, uh, Hans Zimmer, Hildegard von Bingen, Johann Strauss II, Ruth Schoenthal, and then Beethoven. So which month has been your favourite? 
Ooh, um, a very tricky decision. Um, I'd probably have to say Johann Strauss II. I knew you were um, going to say that. I knew it. <laughs> yeah. Um, I just, I love his music. It's so elegant. To me, it's like, when you when you hear his music, you can kind of imagine sort of Vienna in its heyday and the gorgeous architecture over there. And I just, yeah, I really, I really connect with his music. And I found that one, one of the interesting things about this project has been able to kind of rediscover composers that I've either played myself as a musician or I've heard lots in concerts and also kind of explore new and basically unheard of composers for me. Composers I've maybe heard sort of uh, covered briefly in sort of somewhere in some recital program. Yeah. Um, but being able to kind of look into it, into sort of the same things and old things, and yeah, it's been really interesting. What um, composer would you say has been your favourite, Alex? I think my favourite was Paul Hindemith. I think because mm. um, out of all of the composers we chose, I like his music the best. Um, Mm. And I was really excited to visit a couple of works I didn't know and then also revisit works that I do know, like Symphonic Metamorphosis we did um, and mm, the Trombone yeah. Sonata um, I know really well. But then we looked at some other stuff, uh, the Plona Music Tag. I didn't know that and I really like that. Mm -hmm. um, and I just felt like he really encapsulated this project. He really represents what this project is all about. And I just, I thought that was, and also that was the first month as well. So we were both kind yeah. of trying out new things and seeing how it was going to go. And I thought, actually, for a first month, it went quite well. So I would probably yeah, say definitely. Paul Hindemith. But I did also enjoy Hans Zimmer the next month as well, just because I love film music. Yeah. So yeah, definitely. really hard to choose, really hard to choose. So um, let's talk uh, some numbers. Let's see if the proof was in the pudding or the German pudding like a, a strudel or something. <laughs> <laughs> um, in terms of numbers and people we reached, uh, the project has so far, so this is, um, we're recording this in April, so the project in April so far is being engaged by uh, about 2,100 people, around about. Um, 191 mm -hmm. of those, um, around about, have engaged with specifically your German translations. Um, mm -hmm. And I did a year-to-year -year comparison, so between October and March, 2018-19 and then October, March 2019-20 uh, to see if visitors from Germany in particular, and obviously there's other German-speaking countries, obviously, but I thought yeah. Germany is the best one to pick just for now um, mm -hmm. and just to see if it had gone up and and it has, it has gone up. So in 1819, hey. I, Alex Burns had 409 German visitors, whereas in 1920, it's gone up to 590 so far. So that's a 44% increase, which is quite large, actually. Uh, what do you think about these numbers? Um, are you kind of happy with the outcome? What were you expecting? Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, I was, I was, um, I'm really happy with the numbers. Um, they're also sort of higher than I perhaps anticipated. Um, I, I hoped that the project um, would be popular among classical Alex Burns' uh, audience. I think it's been a, a different way of looking at um it's been nice to sort of select things based on kind of one overriding kind of similarity between composers. I think that's been quite cool. Yeah. Um it's also great to see that visitors from Germany have gone up as well and that people have been engaging with my German translations. That's really lovely to hear. Yeah, because there's one thing engaging with the project, but I think it's another thing engaging with actual, you know authentic German translations. I think that's a, that's a whole mm. different kind of thing. 
Um, so from, yeah. you know, between October 2019 and then March 2020, um, Classical Alex Burns as a whole received about 35,000 visitors around about, um, with, you know, 2,100 around about in being engaged with the project, meaning that's about 6% of people that visit and engage with the project, which I think is really good actually for something that mm. um, is a kind of a one-off and it's, we're, we're kind of not going to, well, we can do if you want to, but you know, we're <laughs> not going to build upon it and make it a brand or anything. I think that's really positive. Um, so yeah. with everything in mind um, that we've done with this project, what have you enjoyed the most about doing it? Um, well, as I said previously, I think, um, obviously collaborating with you, of course, um, but also just getting to, getting to know completely new music, completely, uh, new composers whilst rediscovering composers that I've known since I was little and heard on the radio since I was little. Um, also it's been a, a really unique opportunity to combine two things that I obviously really love and I'm really passionate about, Mm. um, because I think Munich is, uh, music in itself is such a unique way of um, people from different cultures to communicate with one another and to have some kind of shared sense of community. And I think particularly at the moment, um, music is becoming a really important outlet for people. Yeah, absolutely. I, th- I think, yeah, it's really interesting, the whole collaboration thing. I think that's the thing I enjoyed most about it is that because I, because, you know, this blog is only run by me and I do all the content for it. I never have to rely on mm-hmm. someone else to give me stuff most of the time, unless it's an interview or something. But for normal blogs, I just kind of, I can get on with it myself. So actually working in mm-hmm. partnership with someone and setting deadlines and, and actually having that kind of structure, I think was really interesting. And I hope that kind of works yeah. for you, for your project and that, you know, everything seemed to line up quite nicely. Um, and the, you know, the planning was quite an important aspect of that, I thought. Um, before yeah, we definitely. started the project we did quite a lot of planning of how it's going to map out what we're going to do when um how it's going to go down basically um mm-hmm. so what did you find the most challenging about the project um I would probably say the podcast recording um mainly because I've I've never recorded anything for a podcast before and you can definitely notice this perhaps in in my responses in the, the first episode we did together is um, it's surprisingly difficult to find answers when you're being recorded. Yes, it's um, a different kind of pressure, isn't it? Yeah, and also trying to artic- articulate kind of correctly what you're actually thinking about something when you're trying to describe why you like a particular piece. Um, often it's it's actually quite hard to articulate. Um, but that's been a really an interesting process of definitely feel like I've hopefully improved as we've uh, we've gone along and I've become a lot more sort of familiar with the process uh, yeah. and been able to um, work out the kind of questions I want to ask you and what I want to find out about your, your takes on different pieces um, yeah. as we've gone along. Absolutely. I definitely think they have improved over time. So we've done, uh, uh, I can't remember if this is five or six of podcasts that we've done together, but it's, you know, it's just, you get you get easier it gets easier when you do more so the more you talk the easier it gets I try and just not think about it and just talk that's why most of them are really (laughs) waffly because I just go off on a tangent but it's a really interesting learning curve actually I think I think Mm, um what I found the most challenging about the project um was maybe having the tables turned on me and having to do some translations for the Hildegard blogs um yeah and doing all the latin for that 
I think that that was uh, it wasn't unexpected. I knew it was coming. I just <laughs> I, I was just yeah. It was just quite hard. I think to do that. I enjoyed doing it, but I think that was the hardest month. Um, yeah, with everything you know, everything around her and all of that. But I do think that the podcast we did for that um, that month was one of the best ones. So it's, I found that really mm. interesting as well. So um, yeah. If you could go back and do this project again, um, what would you do differently now you know how it's turned out this time? Oh, uh, very good question. Um, I guess I'd just have to go back to, to, to the thing that I found most challenging. I think I'd do some more podcast research. Um, podcasts are so popular at the moment and there are so many out there, mm. particularly sort of around kind of music journalism and people giving reviews of concerts and things. Um, and I think maybe just kind of getting a general feel for what people decide to focus on with pieces or what the, the kind of answers that people give. Um, I yeah. think that might have made me feel, I don't know, a little bit more confident going into the project. Yeah, definitely. Um, but overall, I found the, the collaboration and everything like that a lot a lot easier than it may have been with, with other partners. So that's been a, a really good sort of side point of the, the project. Yeah. That's interesting. I think, um, you know, if I could go back and do the project again as as kind of the, I don't know, the other partner in it, I guess, in the project, I would maybe do it for longer. I know we were under time constraints because mm. this is for, um, it, it, I think we said this in the first podcast we did together, but this is for one of Freya's university uh, degree modules so we're obviously on a, mm -hmm. a time frame but I would do it for longer because I would mm, want to build you know I'd want to build the brand of it because I think that we got we started getting there and now we finished it yeah um yeah. so actually I would maybe say to you oh could we do it for longer um which we, you can do if you want to do more we can do more um but I think I know there was obviously a time frame with that and that's a bit of a hard one to get under. But I think, yeah, just from a marketing perspective, I think that would have been quite nice to do it for a little bit longer. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. So what, I, what I'm really interested in, because obviously, except for the Hildegard ones, all I've done really is I've written some blogs as I would do every day and I put them up on the website and then, you know, market them basically. How did it, how was it mm -hmm. for you um, translating someone else's writing into another language with a time frame that we'd put in place? How was, how did you deal with that? Um, I think uh, certain months were a lot more challenging than other months, um, usually based on the kind of vocab that's, that's within it. So quite sort of early on, I'm familiar with your sort of style of writing anyway, because I do read the blogs of classical Alex Burns. And I think just kind of um, the key to all translation is trying to understand exactly what the author means in each sentence and sort of the overall picture of everything. Yeah. And making sure that, so obviously you don't go word for word, you kind of go for an overall gist of something and you put that in another language. Um, and doing it under a time frame was, it was helpful actually to have the time frame. Um, because I think as with all kind of sort of arts or translation or any kind of that kind of work, um, it's so easy. You never have like a perfect product. Yeah. Um, you could keep kind of keep carving and shaping and improving as you go along. Um, and you could do that forever if no one said, oh, I need it done by next week. So that was, the time frame was really helpful. Um, I definitely found Hildegard a lot more tricky than the other month. Mm. Uh, because 
I myself don't read a pattern or understand it. Uh, it was really, and also quite a lot of the vocab that we used in those blogs was very, very specific. And I yes. was quite unfamiliar with that kind of style of writing in English, let alone in German. So that was, yeah, a really challenging at the start. But by the end of the month, I'd kind of got into the swing of how the translations for Hildegard's pieces worked. Yeah, I think I I struggled the most writing those, you know, not even talking about the Latin, but that's another story. But the, the actual English mm. of it, I found quite, quite challenging because I had to keep in mind that you wanted to translate some of these um, for mm. all the months. So I didn't want to, I try not use loads of jargon anyway, but sometimes, sometimes I do. And I had to yeah. really try not to, but the Hildegard ones were so hard because a lot of the time mm -hmm. there's not another word for something. So... Yeah. Oh, without, you know, explaining it in layman's terms, which seemed a bit mm -hmm. strange in the context of it, I found that quite challenging, actually. And I think mm -hmm. there were some I remember, you know, I, I gave to you and I thought, God, I'd, I'd find that really hard to translate. Like it was a mm -hmm. proper challenge. And <laughs> I'm sorry for that. I just I, I did struggle with that month, actually, for the English part of it. And I had the easy part. So <laughs> you must have had a right um, ball with that. Um but I think for some of the other months were probably a lot more straightforward in terms of um, translating. So maybe like, I don't know, Hans Zimmer and the, uh, Johann mm. Strauss maybe was a bit easier because um, they're a little bit more, well, Hans Zimmer anyways, in the media. So the the kind yeah. of terminology around him is a, a lot, can be a lot simpler and it's easy to write about him. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. So, yeah, maybe that's why Hildegard wasn't your favourite month, because... <laughs> She's <laughs> she's a little bit more of a difficult lady. Um, so, yes, I mean, don't feel obliged to say yes, but would you do this kind of project again? <laughs> um, yeah, definitely, definitely. And and like you said, um, I think doing it for a longer period of time would would actually benefit the project as a whole, as well as the quality of translation. I'd like to thank Freya Riding for joining me on this podcast, Ross Davidson for mastering the podcast, and Ben Gaunt for composing the brand new Classical Alex Burns jingle. You've been listening to episode 7 of Conversations with a Musicologist. Keep up to date with the Classical Alex Burns 365 challenge by visiting the website, and remember to subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss a beat.